Jesus is risen. He is risen Let us here today hear again our gospel reading as we prepare to, to study it and see how it instructs us and how to live. This is John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. And then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciple therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger in here, and look at my hands, and reach here your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, please allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts to be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and nearest kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So as we mentioned last week, the resurrection is the turning point in all of history. Without the resurrection, we would be, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile you and I would still be in our sins. That scripture goes on and say, if, if Christ is not risen, we, of all men, are most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. People of God, we are eight days into the 50 days of Easter. Easter is not insignificant. Christ's resurrection on the first Easter is the center of our lives and faith. We need to slow down. We need to meditate in the great gift of salvation that has been brought to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. People of God, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Again, I'm going to admonish you this week. When you sit at your meals with your family, 
say Christ is risen, and he is risen indeed. Take the time, slow down. For many people in the way we live our American lives, we have a holiday. There's all this momentum building up. And then, as a matter of fact, if you go into your stores, you'll notice that those sections of the stores in in the days before the the, uh, holiday, they've shifted from those big prominent places to these other places, and it's shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. And on, on the day of the actual holiday, the workers are busy throwing that stuff into clearance carts, right, shoving it down, and setting up the next holiday in those same aisles. We live our lives many times in that same way. We need to pause and recognize the significance of Easter, of Christ's resurrection. We have 50 days as the church to do this. And some of you might say, 50 days, that's a long time. We're talking about the center of our faith. The center of our faith. Now in our passage we see that uh, the disciples are in darkness and are afraid. You know, when I was a child, I used to have fears about my closet. I think there's a lot of kids that have been in that way. But as a typical child, though, what I would do is I would take my stuff when it was time to clean my room, open up those folding doors, and chuck it all in there, Right? Well, my parents had given me a Frisbee, nice Frisbee. It actually glowed in the dark. You'd leave it out in the sun, and it would, it would glow in the evening. And one day I was cleaning up in my room, and I chucked the stuff, including the Frisbee, up into the, the closet. And the way my bed was oriented, I'd lay down, and my closet door was to my back. And I had left, the, being slovenly like I was, I had left the closet doors open. And I'm lying in the bed there. i got to be seven or eight years old. And all of a sudden, I hear this noise, uh, this rustling in the closet. And when I had tossed a Frisbee in, it had gone up on this upper shelf. And it had slid out, and it began to, in its glowing state, to glide across the room. <laughs> I was wigged out. <laughs> I have one other means I want to express to you about darkness and dread. Um, what, I, I love camping, and one of the things I camp many times with my children, and I started when they were early, I'd take them away one at a time and do camping trips, and then, you know, they've got to be so many, you just start, you start doing it in groups. But I, I, I took my son James, he must have been maybe five, and we went up on this mountain, and we were camping up there, and it was dark. And it was an overcast night. I mean, it was dark. And I had the flashlight, and we took our, our trash from dinner cleaned up, so we had no, no reason to attract the critters, of course. And we walk over to the, the dumpster that's down the road a bit. But there's no light there. This is a really remote place. And we're up on the top, and I can see it's black. And I wanted to teach my son about God's presence. So what I did is we're standing there, and I'd been holding his hand. I said, okay, I want you to let go of my hand, okay, and I'm going to turn the light out, right? I turned it out, and it was so black, you couldn't see your hand in front of you. 
And I said to him, son, are you afraid? And he goes, no. And I said, why? Because I know you're standing right next to me, right? And now you're talking, and I can hear your voice. And so I turned the light back on, and I, I affirmed him in that, and that's how God is to us. In our text today, it is the evening of the first Easter. Have you ever had a day that was so long that it seems like the morning of that day was truly another day? The disciples were perhaps in a similar way on that first Easter. They had gone to sleep on Saturday night in utter despair. Some, like Cleopas, had left Jerusalem. In spite of the reports of the women, Peter and John examining the tomb, and all of Jesus' teaching prior to the resurrection, we find Jesus' closest disciples locked inside because they are afraid. Everything that they had been working through all morning could have seemed like another day or maybe not even real. We've been there. I've had that day where it seems like morning. That seemed like a dream. I imagine that could have been what the disciples were feeling. Perhaps they had returned and to the despair and fear, remembering Jesus' words that they too would bear up the cross that he carried. On any account, they are locked up and gripped in fear. But you know, Christ doesn't leave them in that state. Here on the first resurrection, he comes in and he gives them a double assurance of his peace, a way to stave off the fear and to help them to believe and trust in him. It says that Jesus came and stood in the midst. That is to say, he came in and was right slap in the middle of them. And he said to them, peace be with you. Now this is a powerful declaration. Everyone there in some manner or fashion had abandoned Jesus at some point. Everything from as abrupt as Peter's denial to them all running away, in the garden, to not standing outside the tomb in expectation, remembering all that Jesus had proclaimed. And even though they've heard that he's not there in the tomb anymore, they have doubts. And Jesus doesn't come in and belittle them. He says and declares, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. You see, even in the presence of our Lord and Savior and him demonstrating the fact that here are my hands, here's the proof, here's my side, and here I'm standing right with you, right? He is giving them peace. Not any kind of peace, but the peace that only God can give. That only comes through the assurance of the work of Jesus Christ to deliver us from our sins. Now you might be wondering the hands inside. 
Why does Jesus have these scars? I think as, as you get older, as you have challenges, you, as you have scars, we all look forward to the resurrection and the glorified bodies, bodies where we'll be the best of ourselves. So why is Jesus, after the resurrection, still bear the scars? We need to remember that Christ rose not for himself, but for us. So the scars were there to affirm and strengthen and bring peace to his disciples. Those scars were there so they would be convinced of his resurrection. Again, remember this. Christ rose not for himself, but for us. That's a powerful statement. Here in this place, at this time, after he affirms them, after he gives evidence of who he is, and after he declares his peace in a powerful way, looking them right in the eye, Jesus establishes the first elders of the church and bestows them with authority. Verse 21 of John 20 says, So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, it says, He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Here on the very first Easter, Jesus now formally commissions and installs the disciples as the first elders of the church. Jesus breathes on them. This reminds us of Genesis chapter 2, When God breathed life into Adam, Jesus is breathing life into his new creation. The Greek word used here for breathe is the only place where it is used in the New Testament. Emphaseo. It is only used here, and that and and but we can look and understand. Well, why is this word breathe used elsewhere differently? But we can say, hey, why did did John, why did the Spirit lead John to use this different word? Well, we can see in the Septuagint, and that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that it is, again, only used in one other place. And that is Ezekiel 37, 9 and, and 10. And it says this. Also, and this is God speaking, this is, this is Ezekiel stating that he, that is God, said to me, prophesy, me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. In Ezekiel 37, God tells Ezekiel to prophesy over the valley of dry bones to create the army of the Lord. This is an army of the resurrected to be returned to God's all-promised covenant land. Jesus, the firstborn among the resurrected, brings to life the resurrected army to bring reconciliation to the nations and to see God's redemptive plan in its fullness. 
Now this is interesting when we consider this. The, same, the only two places we see this particular word breathe used, one in the new, one in the old, it has, it, we, we, we see that it is about life and creating the life of God's army, the church. And an army doesn't function well without leaders. It doesn't function well. In God's establishment of his church, he establishes elders. Jesus puts into effect during this commissioning the authority of the church that he first introduces in Matthew 16. Jesus in chapter 16 asks Peter, who do people say that I am? And after Peter answers the way that others see Jesus, Jesus asks, asks him, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter, and this is verse 16 of chapter 16, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered to him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, at this point, he's just merely saying that, Peter, you're going to be that, that first block, that first leader of the church, and that the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church. Now there's two things to remember here. Gates only open. They don't move forward. What this actually means is is that the church is assaulting the gates of hell. And the gates will not withstand the assault of God's people living faithful lives, obeying God's word, worshiping him. When we come here today and we worship, we declare God's word, we repent of our sins, we allow God's word to cut us up, to be humbled by it. We have come to the Lord's table of peace. And we're commissioned out during this whole episode. God's people, God's army, by worshiping God, the Spirit of God is assaulting the gates of hell. And it will not prevail. But Jesus doesn't stop right there. And he says this, and I will give you, and this again, this is one of these places where the word you is a plural you. It should read y'all, like from the south. And I will give y'all the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus, after the resurrection, takes the future promises from Matthew 16 and does bestow the authority of the gospel message and the keys of the kingdom. So again, coming back to John 20, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them, and if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Jesus, in his first meeting with his disciples, brings the assurance twice to them and goes right to the purpose that God has for them to do, and that is the ministry of reconciliation to the Father, and it will be brought by her church and her elders. Jesus doesn't leave his sheep without a shepherd, and moreover, Jesus establishes under shepherds on the very first day of the new creation. Now this is interesting, because now Jesus is going to bring more reassurance of his peace and lordship to his church on the first day of the week. 
because we know that Thomas is missing in this first assembly on, the, on, the, on Easter Sunday. Thomas doesn't believe the eyewitnesses' accounts. He doesn't even believe those he has spent all this time with. Thomas insists that the only way that he believes is if he sees Jesus himself and then verifies that it's Jesus by taking and looking at the wounds and by actually touching the wounds. Jesus comes to Thomas, and he's full of grace and patience towards Thomas's skepticism. What does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't turn up immediately indignant or offended, but rather waits a whole another week we see in john 20 verse 26 and after eight days his disciples were again inside and thomas was with them and again jesus came and the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said peace to you so after affirming them in the first visit on the eighth day the first day he comes another week later now think about this for a moment. We see that he comes and, and he says to Thomas, takes him right where his doubts are. Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Again, Jesus' scars remained for the love of his people so that they might have evidence that he was truly alive. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and who have yet believed. Now, there's a number of things here. First of all, I want to point this out to you, that nowhere in the passage does it actually say that Thomas actually reaches in and touches the scars. When Jesus appears to him, when Jesus reveals himself to him, Thomas believes. But also, Jesus in his response to Thomas acknowledges Thomas's faith in him. But Jesus now speaks to you and I and all those he has called both now and in the future that we are blessed because we believe without our resurrected Lord standing in our presence. This blessedness is an assured happiness that only comes to us from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Now, this is really important. That just hearing God's word doesn't turn us. But when Jesus calls, all those he calls come to him. When the Spirit reveals who Jesus is to a person, then he knows, then he understands. <clears throat> we need to understand that in all of these things, the authority of the scriptures to believe and to have life is preeminent. God-hating skeptics, including many, many today, want to take up the cause of Satan and repeat Satan's words from the garden hath God really said they live to discredit the Bible 
John here at the end of chapter 20 declares to us. Now listen again. What does he declare? Here, by the power of the Spirit, John writes this, And truly Jesus did many other signs in, his presen in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in this book. Now hear verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. All those outside of Christ exist in an unstable and fear-ridden life. They have no stable foundation to form truth or moral absolutes. And despite all their best efforts to build a way to feel at peace, they cannot do it. Theologian John Gresham Machen in his book Christianity and Liberalism says this, it is no wonder, then, that liberalism is totally different from Christianity. Now, I want to be clear. The liberalism he's talking about here is not about a political liberalism. He's speaking about those that are being liberal with God's word. They're not following it. It's no wonder, then, that liberalism is totally different from Christianity, for the foundation is different. Christianity is founded on the Bible. It bases upon the Bible both its thinking and its life. Liberalism, on the other hand, is founded upon the shifting emotions of sinful men. Now, Machen's ominous words were published in 1923. And I think if we evaluate the world today, both in the church, broadly, and in the world, that so many live their lives and base their reality upon the shifting emotions of sinful men. People of God, God's holy word has been given to us that we may be informed of God, know the hideous nature of our sin, and the saving work of Jesus Christ for both forgiveness of our sin and our reconciliation to God. Peter in John 6 reminds us that all uh, reminds us all that there is no other person or place to turn to. When others were abandoning Jesus and, and leaving, following him, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Christ is risen. He is risen Let us pray. Almighty God, who shows to those who are in error the light of your truth, so that they may return to the way of righteousness, grant to all who are admitted to your fellowship, the church, that we may avoid those things that are contrary to our profession. Help us to believe and obey your holy word, the Bible, that we may not live in fear and doubt because of the work of your Son, Jesus. May we receive your peace in confidence not of ourselves, but in Christ alone. By your mercy, enable us to be faithful in the army of your church so that your will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven may be, may be complete. Father, for the sake of your Son, Jesus, who reigns with you in the Holy Spirit for an ever and ever, world without end, answer this prayer. Amen.